You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. Um, I think today's episode should be interesting. I think we're going to go into territory that maybe hasn't hasn't been covered before, really, in the world yeah. of gender. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, we keep landing in these binaries, which I know sex is binary. I'm not disputing that. But there seems to be like transition and detransition, as though those lines are very clearly demarcated. And maybe for some people they are, but I think there are a lot of people that are in this blurry place that we might say they're lost in transition, where uh, maybe they are transitioned and they don't really have any plans to detransition, but they feel very ambivalent about some of the choices they've made, or they feel like they weren't given the full story. And then there are people that we've heard about who... Let's say they will detransition, but they're in that agonizing place after a surgery or after their bodies have started changing where they think, oh my God, have I made the biggest mistake of my life? And then there are other individuals that I've become aware of that seem to flip-flop back and forth between transition and detransition and retransition and detransition again. So it seems like there's a lot of experiences here that are really hard to categorize and that are full of very complicated emotional experiences and social experiences. And I hope this episode more than anything reaches those people. Um, You know, everybody else is kind of they're welcome to listen, but I would like to kind of reach anybody who's feeling lost and lonely and worried about where they could be and where they should go. And where there could be a sense of urgency. And I, I I, would hope that this episode might speak to them and make them realise, yeah, th- there isn't a Rubicon that you cross. You, you, you kind of, you stumble along in life and you make the best decision that you can at the time. And then mm-hmm. you make another decision you can at the time. And, you know, what works for you today is probably the best rule of thumb that you can go for. And we we don't have a crystal ball, but it does seem that this idea, this binary of transition and detransition isn't how it's playing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Where do you want to start? There's so much here. I suppose uh, for me, I would like to talk to, you know, I think of, you know, like Corinna Cohn wrote that amazing article in the Washington Post and she called herself the disenchanted transsexual at some point. And Mm. I thought that was very interesting. She was disenchanted with transition and she is kind of and it's very interesting it's we will link this article in in our in our show notes but it's it's a kind of an interesting place where you've you've transitioned and you know the pot of gold turned out to be you know a a very basic saucepan Mm -hmm. (laughs) it 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 hasn't (laughs) it hasn't delivered on its promises 
And there you are still living the same person that you always go. You know that John Kabat-Zinn, he's, he's the guru of mindfulness and he wrote a yes. book called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Mm. And the, this is, I think, what happens when somebody has transitioned and they're like, I'm still me and I am that flawed self. Now, I don't know. I haven't had the experience, but I've I've listened to them and there feels there's a feeling of disappointment with the whole thing. And the medical complications add an extra layer for some people, not for all people, but for some people, it's like I'm I'm still me, except I'm me with a whole dollop of extra complications that actually I could live without. But I have them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was actually reading Corinna's article before we started it. I wanted to like read something that just really struck me from the piece she, she wrote a piece called What I Wish I'd Known When I Was 19 and Had Sex Reassignment. And she says, what was I seeking for my sacrifice? A feeling of wholeness and perfection. I was still a virgin when I went in for surgery. I mistakenly believed that this made my choice more serious and authentic. I chose an irreversible change before I'd even begun to understand my sexuality. The surgeon deemed my operation a good outcome, but intercourse never became pleasurable. When I tell my friends, they're saddened by the loss, but it's abstract to me. I cannot grieve the absence of a thing I've never had. Wow. It's so touching and it's yeah. so profound. And sad. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of sad things happen to a lot of people. And we learn to roll on, you know, so we beat on, you know, boats against the tide as yeah. Scott Fitzgerald said, and I really do think that we 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 really do need to realize that sometimes a very sad thing happens. You're there, you're living it, you made your decisions and you can still carve out a life. You can you can still you can still live and you can have life. You can have deep relationships. They might be just friendships, but honestly, platonic friendships have a depth that is often unacknowledged. You can mm -hmm. have a good life. You you really can. And you can still think, and I did things that I, I if I if I had my life over again, I wouldn't have done. But you know, that's what many of us think about many different things. Yeah. I'll tell you, I was listening to Alice Drager in a conversation with the Aaron's on the Transparency podcast. And I remember at the time she was kind of making this argument that you know, if we want to support bodily autonomy, then we have to be willing to accept the risks that sometimes young people make change, changes to their bodies that they will later regret. And at the time, really, I was so upset by her argument because I thought we help prevent young people from making all kinds of decisions to try and mitigate the possibility of making some kind of brash decision. And it really bothered me. But I also think a lot about that argument in context of people who are disappointed in their transition, because yeah. there isn't a way to rewind time and teach yourself the lessons that you wish you knew. I mean, this is the gift and the curse of how wisdom accrues in our lives. It's often through the making of mistakes and sometimes tragic mistakes. And it's awful. And I, I do think as a society, we should do our best to protect young people from some kinds of mistakes. But, you know, this is the kind of cultural zeitgeist, and there are going to be a lot of people listening who feel they have 
like royally screwed up something mm-hmm. and maybe feel hopeless or maybe feel like they don't know how to move forward. And it's so important to remember how resilient people can be and the kinds of things human beings can live through and have lived through. And there's just countless stories of really heroic acts of just surviving a difficult circumstance. Yeah. You know, and I I just, if anyone is listening, I hope they will take some comfort in that, that, you know, even though this is a particular medical scandal, in my opinion, if you are a young person medicalized, um, you, you can draw on the kind of strength and resilience that we all possess to get through incredibly diff- difficult circumstances and still build a life that is really valuable and rich. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think you can forge meaning out of your life that you've got what you have. You've got, you know, the, the cards that you have today is what you have and you can have a Incredible anger, and I join you in the anger about yeah. what you feel was done to you when you were young and vulnerable, and actually needed some guidance. So yeah, I think it's very justifiable that there would be a, a deep w- wave of anger, and that I'd imagine I've heard enough detransitioners talk. I'd say there's real cold, dark nights of the soul, where you're thinking, "What have I? Could could I have made the biggest mistake of my life? Could could this be?" that I've made a terrible mistake and what do I want to, what is my, what is my kind of mind around that? How do I reckon? It's like a reckoning, a very, Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. difficult reckoning. And it's like, yeah, we can make massive mistakes in life and still we breathe, still we live, still we can enjoy our coffee and get great beauty out of going for a walk in nature. We, we can still manage and it can still be, you can still get angry at the doctor that did that to you. Yeah. And you yeah. can still think, because, you know, I when I, I talk to an awful lot of detransitioners at the moment, Genspect are doing a kind of a big initiative around it. And um, so we're talking a lot with them. And I, I feel a lot of them get these feelings of, you know, it's over. I, I've made this awful mm. decision and, you know, everything is ruined. And it's like, nah. That's actually a young person talking like Corinna's was much more reflective and you could see the wisdom of age. Ah, yeah. Yeah, She she was like, yeah, you know, on reflection, that might have been a massive mistake. However, you know, these things happen. I, you know, when you're very intent on doing something, something got you in your grip. I know I worked a lot in addiction when I was first a therapist. And I used to see this arc so they'd start off, they wanted to give up and then they gave up and, you know, they were on this high, they'd given up and, you know, they were on a real high of, of you know, sobriety is for me and stuff. And then would come the day they'd come in as if they'd had a hammer to their head and it would be the, I always call them in my mind, the lost years. And they're like, how did I spend 15 years wasting my life, ruining my mm. marriage, breaking my children's heart? How, how did I do that? And then there would be a significant part of the therapy would go into the mourning, the grief around the lost years. And this is how I find a, a lot of people with, the, with who've had the transition experience. They're, they're grieving their lost years and what happened during my lost years. And honestly, anybody who works in mental health is, yeah, some 
addiction, you can be 20 years in your lost years. You can be 30 years in your lost years. They can last a long time and you can still come out of it and you can repair relationships because the extraordinary resilience of the of the human spirit, it, it is really gratifying. When I was a kid, it, it, it's a funny it's a funny story and it's not really relevant, but it, it really it, it occurs to me quite often when I was a kid, the worst thing ever as an Irish Catholic in the 80s was to get pregnant. That was we were told a hundred million times by a million different sources. This was what we should never do. And I remember a 14 year old when I was 14, she got pregnant. And I remember looking at her thinking and the town looking at her mm. thinking, you've ruined your life. You have ruined your life, your life. And she had this kind of toughness in her face because she knew everybody thought collectively, you have ruined your life. And she had her baby at 14, which is no mean feat. And uh, um, she, um, I would say, had a very, I would imagine, difficult teenage years and 20s. But, you know, I've I've stayed in touch with her and, you know, she's 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 had a great life. She's had a great life. You know, she's about my age. She's about 47 and she's had a great life. So that whole you've ruined your life that she had to live through at 14 and many did. I saw loads of teenage pregnancies in my in my in my town. And I I, the, the real vibe was, well, another one gone. She's gone. You know, she's knocked up. That's it. She's out. She's out. She's over. She'll leave school. She'll have her baby. You know, she has just stepped out, if you follow yeah. me. And yeah. they, were, they were wrong. That, that analysis of you've ruined your life, that is wrong. It's just a major event has happened. And there will be a lot of reflection around that. And now with a baby, there will be a lot of love and there will be a lot of, you know what I mean? But it, it's very difficult to have a baby at a very young age. It's, you know what I mean? It's not, it does. Yeah. It leaves you outside society. It leaves you outside other people's experiences. And this is the transition experience. You're kind of, you're outside what you're everybody so else. Outside. Yeah. You're so outside. I can't help but notice just the interesting foil. You're talking about a teenage teenager who got pregnant, and we're talking about people who probably will n- never get pregnant. You know, maybe, depending on what surgeries or interventions they've had. And I think you're right. Both experiences make you an outsider in your peer group, and your experiences around life and family and sexuality are completely unrelatable to most other people. And, you know, to, to the individuals who may be listening, I, I wonder if it's so important to connect with other people who know what you're going through. Yeah. And even if you're not, and and like, I know that it's like, if you're a detransitioner, partially because of the way search algorithms work, like you can find other detransitioners but if you're somebody who's, you know, maybe you're not going to detransition. Maybe you're, yeah. you're you're comfortable being trans, but you want to honestly air some of your ambivalence. Yes. Where do you go? How do you find other people? I mean, I know you're you're pretty well connected in the detrans community. Are you aware of any kind of like disaffected trans people yeah, community? Yeah. And we're 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 starting a project and uh, Angus will kill me, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and we're 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 calling it beyond transition, as opposed to detransition, retransition, yes. because we tried to get a phrase that actually um, 
encompassed all the different levels, all the different layers, because some people, I think they they have judged themselves and I, I'm not them. They've evaluated that they're past the point of, of no return, that they cannot yeah. go back. If they could go back, they would, but they can't. And they have come to that conclusion. And honestly, I've listened to them. I remember Scott Nugent, who won't mind quoting me quoting him because he's very public, but he said, I'm balding. I'm for I'm in my forties. I can't go back and be a woman because it's going to be too hard. Like I'm I'm you know, he described himself as this fat middle aged balding man. And for mm-hmm. him to try and go back. And I think he, he's making a very good yeah, point. Legit. Yeah, legit. I think it's very legit. For each of person, course. they weigh up their own... It's your, it's yeah. your life. You have to decide yeah. how you're going to move through the world. I really understand. It's not my experience, but I can completely understand somebody who, even if they've totally rejected the notion of gender, yeah, their their physical reality makes a big difference in how they move through the world, how they live their life how they might have persuaded their whole family to get on board with the transition. Maybe it doesn't make sense to go back. And I mean, just don't want to get off on a tangent, but I am really annoyed with people on the internet trying to tell others whether or not they should detransition because of their philosophical views or because of understanding some discrepancy in the medical process. It is nobody's business (laughs) whether or not a person stays trans, detransitions, doesn't what name they want to use for themselves. I mean, that is an adult's business. I couldn't agree more. And it's it's so intrusive to tell people what they should do, because I've heard quite a few people who are, you know, beyond transition or lost in transition, who say things like, um, it was all about me when I transitioned. And now I'm transitioned and everybody's just, everybody in my family and friends, they're rolling along and we're talking about different things. If I detransitioned, it'll be all all about about me me again. again, And I'm not going to do that. And I think, yeah, very good point. What, they'd have to relearn a new name, relearn, you change everything, all the, the, you know what I mean? And that's not to say some people should detransition because that's what they Mm -hmm. want to do. But -hmm. other people need to be given the the freedom to do exactly as they wish because it's, it's, it's not, it's a very hard task to yeah. contemplate this. It's it's not an yeah. easy situation to be in. And then there's people, and I've met them, who, who detransition and then retransition. They go back, they go back. Mm-hmm. So they might, let's say, have been born female and they they get very absorbed in trans world. They transition And then they find it's not as as not the thing that they thought it would be. Or maybe they realize that quite a lot of them say, but I realized I would never actually be a man. It wasn't really delivering. And so I detransitioned. And then I realized that I have this gender dysphoria. And that's when it often sounds very like, I believe, anorexia or something, because they really, really want to look male. And that never left them. And so then they they go back on tea, almost like a, somebody who's going back on drugs. They, they they want to go back on because they think it'll make me feel better. And I just, I, I want it. It's not even rational. I just want it. And for, I don't know that now some people, maybe it's the most rational thing in the world. They've tried detransitioning and it didn't work out for them. So they're going to go back. There's so many layers to this. So you're so yeah. right when you started it, say, let's let's loosen up this binary a little bit here. Yeah, I, I'm so curious about like, so I, 
without naming anyone specifically, I kind of have observed over the last almost, you know, eight years or so, some people that just seem to flip flop from one extreme position to the other. So it's like a person who goes from being a trans activist to like a very extreme rad femme to a trans activist to an extreme rad femme. And I'm like, I'm curious about what might be going on in that kind of case. Um, and I, I can only imagine the kind of internal turmoil and conflict that a person like that is probably experiencing to just, it's almost like I think about getting in a car accident and the whiplash you feel. Yeah. Like it must feel so chaotic and disruptive to constantly go from one extreme to the other. And I don't know exactly what might be going on there, but I find it... Um, very interesting because I think there are a couple of people I've I've observed in these debates who, you know, go from one extreme position to the other, and then the opposite poles of the argument always kind of prop them up. Like, oh, this is an ex-trans person talking about the dangers of trans, and then it's like they become a trans activist talking about how awful detransitioners are. Like, I've seen that a couple I've of times. I've seen that. I've seen that. It makes me think a few things. It makes me think. They're driven by this need to see who are the baddies, who are the villains of the tale. And wow. I'm not convinced there's villains of the tale. I, 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 you know what I mean? I, I, well, certainly they might be in the extremities, but generally we're all haplessly kind of moving along, trying to be happy in our own way. And is there mm-hmm. that many villains? And it's a it's it's a very, um, I would say, a, a really frightening place to be because you're you're trying to find who who. Who's the baddie? And there's somebody, there's somebody awful trying to ruin my life. And I don't know who it is. Yeah. It's and like it, a hypervigilance. That's yeah. That's probably terrifying. Yeah. It must be a terrifying place and it must be very frightening. And the issue there is that's, that's, that's nothing to do with gender as such. That, that's to do with somebody who's really, really in a, a deeply, deeply emotionally heightened state and and needs a kind of needs a, a huge introduction to the middle ground and to to just the ordinary people who are just trying to be happy in their own way and they don't have dark seeds it's it's moving into paranoia yeah you know what i mean and there is yeah. there is like a, you know i didn't know this that there's there's links i didn't know it until until i was introduced some, to some literature that you know there is links a lot of links with people who are who have paranoia and taking court cases Paranoid people very often take big, long, extended court cases against their college, against their. Do you know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, and it's 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 an it's a factor in court cases that I didn't realize. Do you know what I mean? And it makes sense to mm-hmm. me that they mm-hmm. think you know, or something went wrong for them, like you know, the system went wrong for them, and they became paranoid. Like you could say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? If you follow me, yeah. But this, if you've ever worked with anybody who has paranoia, they really—it's a really frightening place to be. It's it's really yeah. really frightening, and also the links with autism and activism. Which is again that kind of black and white thinking, not not doing disagreement very well, kind of thinking if if I'm right, you must be wrong, and you must yeah. be told, yeah. and and so that's that's another kind of factor in this kind of world. It's a frightening world. These are definitely very vulnerable people who need to to take it to kind of to 
on some level to bring the emotional heightened down. And what I find is it's often traumatizing for people who who are either lost in transition or detransitioning. They don't they can't trust themselves. And this seems to really haunt them because they don't know what to do. They don't know whether to move. They don't know whether to get a new job. They don't know if they can trust their new friend. They can't. They don't know who to trust because they can't trust themselves because they feel they've lost trust in themselves. That's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. I I think about this flip flopping and I, I something that came to mind before you said that and then you perfectly articulated it like this is probably a person that does not feel self contained, meaning even being in my own body is a very unsafe place. And so I just keep searching for some kind of guarantee of the good guy or the safety or where is the bad guy. And, you know, I think about just the kind of internal regulation of your own responses, your, your physiological sense of safety in yourself. That must be very difficult. And I think if, if you find yourself swinging like a pendulum from one extreme to the other, it might be really helpful to work on disidentification with either pole and yeah. trying to find a kind of safety in a more neutral space, a more, you know, mindful space, a more like, let me stick with moment to moment experiences. Let me check in with myself and see what's going on right now, rather than let me get swept up in this cerebral way of analyzing who's the bad guy, who's the good guy. Now, granted, I understand that for those people listening who have really been harmed by a rogue medical system, you're experiencing like a kind of trauma reaction. You know, I I know trauma is a tricky word because there's a bit of mission creep and stuff. So I'm being, I'm using it not to say that everybody who's ever done any kind of medical transition is dealing with trauma and they're permanently scarred. That's not what I mean. But if you find yourself terrified to be in your own skin all the time, uh, that that means that you have some physiological difficulties that are worth dealing with in kind of like a slow, steady, here and now, mindful kind of attitude. Um, I agree with you, but I can nearly feel them listening and mm. saying, how, mm-hmm. how, Sasha, how? So yeah. could you talk a little bit about that? Are you talking about like almost yoga or body kind of yeah, exercises? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm talking about maybe modalities or practices that draw on like learning how to identify really basic things going on in the body. So yeah, I'm thinking about there's all kinds of somatic practitioners who do um, you know, somatic experiencing is a type of trauma informed therapy that deals with the body. All of the um porges work on the vagal system i'm hoping getting that right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um the body keeps the score is another book that's really interesting and look i think some of these modalities tend to be overly simplistic i mean there's a lot of technical jargon which i don't even know is that necessary but i think a very basic skill of like recognizing what's happening in your body let's say you're starting to get incredibly anxious and you notice that your heart's beating and your palms are sweaty and you're feeling flushed and hot. What happens when when that happens to you? Some people don't even notice at all and they find themselves kind of curled up in the corner 
unable to leave the house and they don't know why. Some people notice that physiological reaction and get terrified and say, I have to stop this, I have to stop this. And that's mm. what causes panic attacks, by the Very way. Good. Yeah. Trying to subdue your physiological response. So there are all kinds of practices like yoga or mindfulness or some kind of guided meditations. Um, there are some that are better than others. But I think learning to be in, in tune with what's happening physiologically without necessarily judging it and just riding the waves of emotion, not trying to stop them, not being afraid of them, not thinking they're going to kill you. I think being able to just be um, cooperative with your body and your emotions is really helpful because all of us have emotions. There's nothing wrong with them. They're natural. They're healthy. They are just a normal part of being alive. And they usually come and go pretty quickly if you yeah. allow yourself to feel them. And in my experience, working with some people who really struggle with anxiety, it's the trying to stop yourself from feeling anxious or from crying or from being upset that causes these prolonged, like I was having a panic attack for three hours. And then when you break it down and you ask a lot of questions, you realize this person spent three hours trying not to have a panic attack. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So usually if you just allow yourself to freak out, it'll probably yeah. last two minutes and go away. Yeah. And you might even have a sense of tenderness towards yourself afterwards. Right. Um, as well as that, I've heard you speak about this and I, I think it was really good. You've kind of said things like, I wonder, it can be helpful for a person who's disconnected with their body to start figuring out what their body can do. So I know you do weightlifting and you're kind of testing your body and you're seeing what your body can do. And then you could move it beyond that. You could go to kind of, let's say, mountain climbing or you could mm -hmm. go to maybe horse riding where you're actually you're working your body. You're, you're kind of I think I'm very into kind of the therapeutic impact of horses that you're working mm -hmm. with another body and yeah. you're, you're you're kind of you're absorbed in something that's completely mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. nobody's thinking about transition and nobody's talking about rad femmes and 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 all that sort of stuff. And there's no kind yeah. of, you know, MRAs and TRAs and all that. You're actually in a very physical exercise that lets you leave your mind behind because it's mm -hmm. challenging. Rock climbing very, is challenging. You're in the very. middle of it and you're thinking, what do I do next and all that? And there's you're getting better. So you've got a project. Do you remember? I, I hope she won't mind us talking about it. Um, uh, she's a hormone hangover on, on Twitter, Grace. And she, she spoke about it. It was such a beautiful uh, concept. Oh, about, about hiking. Well, no, you can oh. tell me about hiking. I'm okay. I was going to talk about the blanket. She was, oh, yeah. oh, yes. So she said, you know, at the start of her kind of transition journey, she thought, I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, crochet this blanket. I probably got all the words wrong because I certainly I'm not somebody who sits around. I think she said something like, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel awful. Let me finish this blanket and then see how I feel That's or it. something like that. that. She it. just told herself, I'm just going to finish this blanket. Yeah. Something and, like that. And that's exactly how people uh, deal with, you know, uh, by the way, with addiction. It's just like, just do today. What do you need to do? What will be helpful today? That's all. What would be helpful today? Just do today. What could help you today? And I thought that was a really nice way of can you find a project 
that has, you know, that you're going somewhere with it, like, let's say, horse riding or mountain climbing or weightlifting, that has a bit of body in it and you're going somewhere with it. But what did she say about hiking, our our resident guru? (laughs) Yeah, she, she wrote this beautiful piece called The Opposite of Gender Dysphoria on finding a new way of relating to my body. And she talks about doing this very, very challenging hike I think with her boyfriend or fiance, um, her fiance, yeah. And I'll, I'll link it in the notes. It's beautiful. And she talks about how, how many times in the hike she was unsure about whether or not she should continue and how exhausting it was and how she could feel her body, you know, breathing very heavily and her legs were tired. I read it a while ago, so I hope I'm getting it right. But then she talks about just this incredible satisfaction that she felt when they got to the end of the hike at the top of the mountain. And not only did they see this beautiful view, but she kind of reflected like, wow, my body did that. I did this with my body. And I I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think for me, the reason I find resistance training so compelling is that you just it's amazing how strong we can get. And that's different from a person who's just some genetic freak and they're born really, really, really strong, which I don't think anybody is born like that. But, (laughs) But to be able to notice week in and week out the improvements and the way you feel tall and capable and you're like, able to do something that you definitely couldn't have done two months before. That's amazing. I mean, I find that incredibly compelling. And um, being able to be patient with yourself and learn how to work with setbacks, like all of these things require a great deal of mental flexibility. You can't plow ahead. Let's say you have an injury. You can't plow ahead and make yourself go lift the same weight that you lifted yesterday because you're going to hurt yourself. So it's like you have to be both kind and compassionate to yourself. And also when you're feeling good and you're feeling strong, you push yourself just a little bit past what you could do before. And it kind of reminds me of what Grace said in this piece, like the hiking was really challenging, but it gave her an appreciation for what her body could do and being able to experience like the the inhale and exhale really heavily of your lungs. Like you can't ignore those things. You're in your body when that starts to happen. So I just find it really compelling to use our bodies in these difficult and interesting ways. Uh, and from my, my conversations with, with people who have had difficulties with their medical transition, they often have to come to an acceptance that there was some body loathing that was was driving a lot of their decisions. And um, kind of having your body be appreciated seems to me to be a, yeah. a a good way to go at it. Not yeah. necessarily through other people thinking you're good looking. This is a, a self-evaluated thing. Right. That's really right. important. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. 
If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Yeah, and you know, you and I did a Q&A recently about this perception of medicalizing distress. It was in our Patreon, and it's kind of reminding me of this question too, because individuals who have been through the medical transition process have also relinquished the control of their body to doctors and surgeons and endocrinologists. And of course, they, you know, most of the time did it very much because they felt empowered by the idea of transition and wanted to. So I'm not saying it was a completely one sided thing. But if you find yourself in hindsight, really regretting that or feeling victimized by that, that's very important. And I honor that. But in terms of the healing process, there are a couple of different ways you could channel that feeling of victimization. You could raise awareness campaigns, just like a lot of detransitioners are doing. You could spread the information about what you've been through to help others. And also, at some point, you're going to have to figure out, how do I take back responsibility for and control over this body, which is mine? Yeah. And I know, for example, somebody like Helena has gotten really into nutrition and eating, you know, certain kinds of foods and whatever pathway you need to take in order to feel like I am taking care of my body, I'm doing the best things I can with my body, I'm treating it as best as I can. Maybe that's a nice contrast to the self-loathing that you have experienced in the past where you said, well, the solution is chop off parts of my body. I mean, I know. I know. And it seems such a it seems such an aggressive thing for a person to do in some contexts that really does seem it feels like that or it's you know easy to understand it as that. And maybe you 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 have been, but there's lots of ways to be self-destructive. There's lots of ways people are very very self-destructive and people can be very self-destructive for many many years. Yes. And for some people, especially those um, people who might be listening who are young and who think, I, I think you've, you've got plenty of years left. You've got plenty of years. If this is what's happened to you and if this is your terrible realization, I've made a mistake. And uh, I, I would think, well, honestly, um, if this is the worst that's happened to you, you, you can go forth now. You can get some meaning from your life and you, you can really, because we do make mistakes. There's a very famous story about a mistake. Um, Ernest Shackleton, um, he was uh, one of the explorers in the last century, about 100 years ago, and he was exploring the South Pole. And the navigator was, um, you know, navigating the boat to get through mm-hmm. a really difficult 800 mile journey. And there's 27 men left on the island and they were going to die if these men couldn't get the boat to the certain point and get them, you know, get, you know, save, get, you know, people to save them. And the navigator put them wrong <laughs> completely and he sent them oh the completely God. wrong direction. And then when they all turned to him, like, we've gone, we've gone like hundreds of miles the wrong way. And he turned to them and he said, I made a mistake. <laughs> mm. And I, I, re- I remember reading that and I just thought, we do. We do. We make yeah. mistakes and they can have terrible consequences. And it's yeah. human. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's it's so true. And I think sometimes 
there's this fiction that that we can avoid mistakes yeah. completely. And yeah. I, I, even I, you know, I think when we were talking with Jesse Single and I'm thinking about the Dutch protocol and all oh, this, I'm like, well, what yeah. about the assessments? And I know my, my mind keeps going back to like, there is no crystal ball. There's no crystal ball. And that's not to say that we absolutely stay in a stagnant place and we're terrified to make any decisions because we're afraid of making the wrong decision. But, you know, there's this illusion that if you do it this way, nothing will go wrong. Or if you do it this way, everything will go wrong. And really, I think detransitioners or those lost in transition, they're kind of caught up in this complicated dance that happens between medical advancement and society and culture and ideas and identity politics and all of this stuff. And it's, it's really awful. And I do think that this is a scandal we will look back on with a lot of shame, but we are all here. So what are you going to do with, with the situation? And I think some of it is grieving. Some of it is raging against what happened to you. Some of it is finding support. Some of it is knitting a blanket, you know? Some of it is making art. There's a lot of people sharing incredible pieces of art that they've made or things they've created. So there are a lot of pathways, but everybody has to find a way to heal. Yeah. And I think that part of it is, from what I've heard of with the detransitioners, and, you know, in the, in the the they often say that the worst time was before... I made the decision to detransition. It was it was the couple mm. of years when I was in my wilderness and I, I, I didn't know I'd have I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking, have I made a mistake? Is this all wrong? And then I, then in the daytime would come and they'd roll on and then the, it would come back to them. And so so I, I do think those people can feel very, very lonely. And I'd love if they could reach out, not that they're going to necessarily detransition, but that they reach out to find people that they can talk to, that they're not alone in this yeah. place. And I often find they don't want to because they can't face talking to their family and friends because they were so emphatic about transitioning and I find that they're very very they're very kind and forgiving about their their family they never seem to blame their parents and in my experience that they they say I was mad I convinced them my parents were not into it and I convinced them I was a one woman or one man campaign and Mm. I absolutely convinced them that they were that I needed to transition and um, they can feel a terrible sense of I can't go. I know a couple of people who haven't told their family that they've detransitioned because they they, they can't disappoint yeah. their family. They don't want to yeah. disappoint their family. They know how much upset it will cause their parents. Yeah. And so there's a huge amount of kind of layers of I I have my own terrible thoughts here about what's going on. And I can't even think about telling anybody about this because it's just going to it's going to freak everybody out. And I'd love if those people move beyond that lonely place to anywhere so that they speak about it to people. Yeah. What's coming to mind a little bit for me, because in my work, I've worked with more desisters than I have detransitioners. And even there, I mean, there's a great deal of shame that can be part of that process, even if someone's never medicalized and kind of a 
like uh, cringing about the kinds of things I used to say, the way I told everybody that I'm not really a girl and the begging that I did to use different pronouns or the torture I put my parents through or, or, or sometimes feeling like I was confused and my parents didn't try to understand me at all. So it's not always you know, oh, good riddance, I'm glad that phase is over. It's really, really complicated. Yeah. Um, but I th- yes, I, I think about how hard it is to invest so much of your time and your energy and convince everybody around you that this one pathway is right. And then to go, oops, you know, that's so hard. And it's very hard to trust yourself because you're like, if I got that wrong, well, maybe I'm getting this wrong. So how can I, how can yeah. I, tr- and that lack of trust in yourself is almost the most debilitating position to be in. Yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. You can't trust yourself. Well, it just makes me think that an important part of this, I think for some people is to learn about influence, high influence groups, toxic control kind of situations, because I think in lots of cases, especially for the ROGD cohort, Many of these young people were kind of indoctrinated into a whole belief system around identity. These are not necessarily people with a lifelong history of gender dysphoria that was organic and spontaneous. These are people who first adopted a certain worldview about gender, went whole hog into it, and then at some point the bubble burst or maybe slowly the belief system chips away and then they're left with the what has been done to their bodies. And in those cases, I think learning about and educating yourself about how influence works can really help mitigate the self-blame because we're all vulnerable to influence and we're all vulnerable to adopting belief systems that are not organic. I mean, that's how all belief systems work because most of them come from the outside at some point. But There is a lot of self-betrayal in that process of like indoctrination. And if you can understand that a little bit better, you may be less inclined to blame yourself because people who fall into this, I don't think are stupid. I don't think that they're ignorant. I don't think that they're less capable. I think many of these people are highly intelligent, actually, Um, really seekers, seekers of transcendence, seekers of meaning, seekers of justice. And those are beautiful traits. And also, without the the wisdom of age and the wisdom of mistakes, that can be a vulnerability too. So I think in the process of healing and figuring out like what the hell has happened, I do think that's a really important piece. And I actually hope that we will really delve into the issue of influence in, in much more depth in this podcast. Yeah. I do think I remember I wrote something for Jen's back then and called it the arc of detransition, but I didn't go far enough because I talked about basically how at the beginning they, they, they have some trauma or distress. Then they find uh, what they think is a solution and they feel a bit euphoric and then they chase it and they're, they're really driven. And then they um, might find some disappointment. There might be medical complications. Then there can be kind of anger and loneliness and then they could choose to detransition. But I didn't continue. And I think mm. there's another arc of when you choose to detransition. And I've seen it quite a, like quite often in people that they start off and they think, 
okay, there's there's long nights of the soul where you're thinking, what what has just happened? What is going on? And I think they're the most difficult times. I really do. And then if somebody chooses to make the decision to detransition, there's a feeling of almost very like the feeling of when you first decided to transition, which is almost a liberation of right. I'm going back. I've got a purpose. Mm. This is where mm-hmm. I'm going. Mm-hmm. And that can have its own disappointment because when you detransition, Again, there's medical complications. It's finding out, for example, for some people that they will be on hormones for the rest of their life because mm-hmm. of the decisions that they that, that were made sometimes when they were really very vulnerable by doctors yeah. that shouldn't have made them. And then they go on and they become very often very angry, very politicized and very understandably and justifiably. And I, I'm all for it. I meet them often in that space and they're very angry. And I think of Kale. When I met Kale, she did the film with me uh, in 2018 mm-hmm. and she was a detrans woman. And she was really, when I met her in 2018, filled with that anger and let me at him and I just want to say my story and I want to tell. And she told it in the film and she told it very well. And she, you know, she she went on and she did newspaper interviews and all that. But, you know, a couple of years later, I was inviting her, let's say, to the Manchester Detransition Conference. And she says, ah, no, I'm I'm over all that. (laughs) And she had her own business and she was doing her own thing and she'd moved beyond. And I think that's lovely. And I think that's a whole other arc that you move beyond that and you kind of think, yeah, I'm I'm kind of out the other end and now I'm just busy about my life and I'm busy about. But one one story about Kale that I think of often, I, I think of it in terms of the parents. She didn't know how to tell her dad that she had. Did I tell you this before? No, tell me. Oh, it's really, I, I think it's, you might have. I but might I, have, but it's worth yeah. saying it again because it's kind of beautiful. She didn't know how to tell her dad that she did detransitioned and her dad had been so against it he had been absolutely against her transition yeah Yeah. against her Uh transition all the way he was completely and utterly against it so she detransitioned and like more people than we think she didn't tell her family she didn't know Mm. she didn't know what to do and she didn't tell her family and then she she had detransitioned she'd stopped she was now presenting as a woman she she had completely kind of gone back to presenting as a woman. She'd had a mastectomy, but she, you know, she was moving on. And uh, she decided to visit her dad. And she said she came up the garden path and knocked on the door and he opened the door and he looked at her and he took it in. And there was no words. And he just opened his arms and they just hugged each other. And she said the hug just lasted forever. And they didn't say a word. And it was really, it sounded beautiful. Just beautiful. And that was it. Yeah. They didn't even talk. They didn't even, It was that was enough. What is there to say? You make me cry, Stella. I know. It's, 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 it's just, uh, what a harrowing journey. What a harrowing experience. What an absolute roller coaster to go through. I can't even imagine. There's, there's all the medical stuff, but even just on an identity level to convince yourself of what you see in the mirror and then change your idea slowly over time and then to change it back. I mean, wow, that's yeah. a lot. That's so much. It's so much and it's so speedy. <sighs> and these kids, yeah. like Kale was only about 22, 23 at this stage. And I think <sighs> they're in, they're, they have been at such a pace for so long that they're almost like a hamster on a wheel. So then they're in the detransition pace. Go, go, go. Mm. And on some level, when you started speaking about the body and all that, it's like 
that's where you kind of need to go. And that's very difficult when you're, you're, you know, running so fast. Yeah. That your mind is racing, looking for solutions. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just kind of making me think that wherever you are listening to this, it's okay to slow down and take your time. It's okay to disconnect a little bit from the internet and everybody's voice. And you don't have to read D-Trans Reddit every day. You don't have to read Pro-Trans Reddit every day. You, you are allowed to just step away and think for yourself a little bit. I mean, back to the issue of influence. I mean, one of the things we know about high control groups is that they bombard members with a huge amount of busyness so that they never have time to think for themselves. It's either, you know, volunteering work or wow. hard labor or reading. They pack a person's day full of stuff so that they huh. never get a moment to themselves. So if you're feeling foggy in the head and you have a billion ideas swirling around and you're not sure which direction to go or what's the right path for you, turn this damn podcast off <laughs> and go sit outside and just allow yourself to get really bored and let your mind go. And tune in with what feels good, develop a little bit of a healthy routine, you know, and give yourself time. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's, you know, that touch the grass kind of concept. I think it was really good. I think it was really good, especially. What is it? What's the, what's the touch oh, the grass it was, concept? it was kind of like, do you remember OK Boomer? Like it was a kind of a oh. dismissive <laughs> comment. Well, okay. the other the other one was, you know, go and touch some grass if you follow me. actually is a good idea i think getting back to nature if at all possible if you've been and i've noticed so many people who i know who have um have undergone transition and been disappointed with the process they have animals in their lives and i think it's I, i no surprise to me at all i can see why because, you know what I mean, the, the, the kind of the glory of nature and also the kind of absolute like, you know, some animals look crazy looking. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so the kind of the, the many mistakes that nature make and, the, you know, the animals aren't kind of taunting themselves in the mirror saying, look how awful I am. They just come yeah. up to you looking for a cuddle. And so it's 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 really. Oh, do they? Is well, that how well, your hikes typically go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean pets? Dogs. I'm still thinking about nature and like wild beasts of, coming I up think, for a cuddle. Well, I'm in Ireland. The wildest beast is a cow, like. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a sheep or something. They're very cute. They are, but um, yeah. the 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 dogs and the cats that they all have, and I think I get oh, it. Yeah, yeah, I get totally. it. It makes a lot of sense that the dogs aren't agonizing about how they look. And or about how you look or yeah. about how you identify. They yeah. love you. They don't care at all. Yeah. And I, I like that development. I think it's I think it's really important. I don't think we could we'd be doing justice to this unless we talk a little bit about how difficult it is, because I, I'd imagine I can hear their voices in my ear saying, yeah, but I don't know the long term impact of testosterone. I don't yeah. know the medical. And they are living in an unknown place, which forces them into the cerebral. And we're trying to say, go back to your body, if at all possible, go back to nature, enjoy an ice cream, have an orange juice and just savor the oranges. This is kind of where you and I are at. What Do what feels good mm-hmm. and healthy mm-hmm. today. Get through today, that'll be enough. Don't try and make big, huge, long-term. I find a lot of them are anxious to make 
get me a big decision, like a career, a, you know, get me something big that I can just get my teeth into. And I'm like, nah, no, I don't think so. Slow that right yeah. down. Don't jump into something else. You know what I mean? Mm. And even though you feel compelled to find a new project, I'd, I'd be very wary of that. However, I do think they're living in a, a, an extraordinary no man's land where Nobody seems to be able to answer their questions of, is this long term impact of testosterone or is it not? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. Will I get pregnant or should I give up on that? Nobody seems to know. I don't know. You know what I mean? So that, I think, causes pain and anger. God. Yeah, that (sighs) that is really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I feel so angry just thinking about those questions and nobody seems to know and also nobody told you before you started so i mean there's completely legitimate kind of practical task oriented things that i think people do have to do even though it is there's a dearth of information trying to gather as much information as you can about what these impacts are and um, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because I've been watching a lot of detransitioner videos and stuff, and some people seem to have really permanent effects, for example, on their voice. Oh, yeah. Some people, their fat distribution changes a lot after they get off testosterone and things kind of revert to And it could take like years. Before. It can be right. two or so, th- Yeah, it can be three so, years they've changed. Yeah. So I, I understand that there are really important practical considerations that people are having to make and having to think about um, for their medical well-being and all of these things. So I, I don't mean to minimize that. I think uh, given that you and I are therapists and not physicians and not endocrinologists, I just feel the best way that I can offer resources are the ones I'm most familiar with, which is what do I do about all these emotions I'm having? Yeah. I, I do think that if at all possible around the, the, the kind of the medical needs, it's the, the detransitioners, a lot of them are swapping information with each other. And if at all possible, try to move away from despair because we don't actually know. We don't actually yeah. know the medical uh, analysis that hasn't come in yet. There just doesn't seem to be evidence. And if you are a physician listening to this, or if you have a physician that you trust, or if you're aware of endocrinologists that are maybe in the field for many, many years, or endocrinologists who actually specialize or have worked with detransitioners, get in touch with us. You can email us at a wider lens podcast at gmail.com. I had to double check. So (laughs) a wider lens podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to get a physician on who can clarify some information about what happens when people stop testosterone after having had surgery, a hysterectomy, or men who have males who have had um, genital reassignment surgery. I'd love to have someone on who knows. And a lot of detransitioners, and they could be forgiven, and I get it, that they, they, they kind of almost have a hierarchy of you know, you know, I had a mastectomy, but you didn't. Or I had genital reassignment, but you didn't. And so there can be, it can feel like a hierarchy and it can feel like it's not a community. And I hear them saying that quite often, it's not a community. And maybe it's a movement. Maybe it's a movement of people who are saying, you know, medical wrong was done to us 
in 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 this world of trans ideology and it has harmed us. And yet we are very different people and we we have lots of different flavors. But I would like that the the, the hierarchical nature of it was reduced a little bit because it, it does seem to be a, 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 a terrible pity to me that it is. I can see how it's happening. It makes sense to me. I get it completely. But at the same time, wrong was done to lots of people in lots of different ways and some people less wrong than others. And that's hard to contemplate about. Yeah. And I would guess that that comes from a place of not feeling like your grievances are heard. So you have to be louder and louder and louder and prove that you're the most hurt, the most hurt. And I think that's what happens when a medical establishment has a wide open entry door and no exit door. And I think that's part of the the, the consequences of what happens during a kind of medical scandal. And I would say that hurt and that pain that the most operated on detransitioners feel, once that is, I think, properly addressed and acknowledged, I think that might lessen the hierarchical feel. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um, I, I, I feel sad that like some people, um, uh, they, they become detransitioners and become very politicized. And then some of them become very angry with other detransitioners who are not politicized. And mm, mm-hmm. I can see why I can see both sides. I, I can uh, see it's, it's got yeah. a lot of layers. God, we could do about 10 episodes on this really, couldn't we? Yeah. I think the message that I would share is that nobody knows what you need, except you have to figure that out. And if that means you take it to the streets and you politicize it and you use that as your outlet, so be it. But if you're someone that needs to step away and like go into the wilderness and paint for two years, you do that. You do what you got to do. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect. And listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.